we look to you, Lord, to bless now your word to our hearts. We thank you, Father, for giving us this more certain and sure word of prophecy. And we pray, Lord, that we would heed it carefully. Help us, Lord, to understand more today the character of your love. Lord, please demonstrate that love to us, even through your word. And Lord, fill our hearts with it. May it be shed freely among us by your spirit this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If uh, you have your Bible, you might want to stay there in Acts chapter 16. We're going to be looking at now several passages, but we're going to start off there. Acts 16 has a preserve for you, uh, I think one of the most exciting and touching and memorable moments in the life of the Apostle Paul. But as it is throughout all the Bible, and specifically in the case of Paul, the individuals involved in what takes place here are not the stars of the story. The star is God himself. Paul, along with Silas and the others, are just what we might call supporting actors. They, they play a part, but the star is the triune God. Uh, he's the main and most important character in this true life drama. And it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who are at work here. You see in this account, God the Father uh, ordering through his wise and good providence the sequence of all the events right up to and beyond the shaking of the prison so hard and so thoroughly that the doors all fall open and the chains drop off of the limbs of those who are imprisoned here. The prison itself is reduced to shambles or ruins by the hand of God. You see God the Holy Spirit at work first in the midnight singing of the Apostle Paul and Silas, who but the Holy Spirit could fill the hearts of martyrs with song while their backs are still stinging from an unjust and illegal beating. It's bad enough that they've been beaten with rods, but it's illegal and it's unjust. And Paul and Silas have had to endure that. It's one thing to be beaten when you deserve it. It's something else to be beaten when you don't. And are they then in prison moaning and groaning? No, they're singing the praises of God out of the Psalms. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. You see the Holy Spirit restraining all the prisoners in their natural inclinations to flee and escape. And you see him, of course, working savingly in the heart and life of the jailer and his family. So you see the Holy Spirit working powerfully here in this scene. And then, of course, you see the Son at work too. You see God the Son, the blessed Lord Jesus Christ, providing the means of redemption uh, to this jailer and his family in a most wonderful and touching way when it comes to pass. Now, Mr. Brillhart and I were working through a devotional this week that reminded us both 
of what a powerful testimony all of this was to the extraordinary nature of the love of God. Here was a man inches away from death, judgment, and eternity, and hell. And at that very moment, when he was ready to take his own life with the sword, a sword he held in his hand, he was about to plunge himself into an irreversible eternity of suffering and sorrow and judgment. And at that moment, the electing love of God snatched him away from his danger and set his feet on a rock. This jailer might have said with King David in Psalm 40, verses 2 and 3, he's also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. See the love of God at work at this moment. In the life of this man, he's just about to take his life, his own life. And love comes and rescues him. And the love to that one has proved to be the love of God to thousands upon thousands. I'm not sure whether you can see it or not. But in his love to this man, God was really showing his love to untold saints. How many who have asked over the centuries what must I do to be saved, have found their own answer in the answer given to this jailer. How many who have looked up and said, what what must I do to know Christ? What do I have to do to find salvation? (coughs) Have found their answer in the answer given here. How many found, discovered for, for the first time, the uncommon love of God when these words were spoken back to them, when they asked that question and were applied to them by the Holy Spirit, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Who knows how many have known true love for the first time and the answer given to that obscure jailer attending a local city jail in the ancient region of Macedonia. Let's think about it. How many of you think you could, just off the cuff, locate Philippi in Macedonia on a map this morning? Some of you could. Some of you might get the right area. Some of you might not even know where to begin. And yet, the love of God found this obscure man and redeemed him, and then used that to speak the gospel to untold generations. He was, after all, nothing more than a minor civil servant serving in a vast empire. And yet, nevertheless, the love of God was focused on that man and his family. And it zeroed in on that man at the critical moment. He was about to plunge the cold, hard steel of his sword into his own heart. But the love of God pushed that steel aside and instead penetrated that heart 
And instead of his bleed blood being poured out on the ground, the gracious, merciful love of God and Jesus Christ was poured into that heart. And he became a new creature in Christ Jesus. That dead heart was given life and it was filled with, with light, joy, and peace and everlasting consolation. And all because of the love that God had for that man and for his family. The love of God for him had called Peter away from Asia Minor and into Macedonia. It had allowed all of Paul's own plans to be frustrated so that it could fulfill its plan to show this man and his family the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you just think about that in the, in the terms that are before us. All that's recorded for us here in Acts chapter 16. If you go back to verse 6, we read this. Now when they, Paul and Silas, had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. That's where they wanted to go. But the Holy Spirit said, you're not going there. After they had come to Myasia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Myasia, they came uh, down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision immediately, we, Luke says, sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And if you read on, you'll see that that takes them immediately to Philippi, where this jailer, along with Lydia, they're both there ready to receive the love of God through Jesus Christ, through the effectual message of the gospel to them. One, uh, in the commentator we were reading, or the the, the devotional that we were reading the author said this jailer was the man from Macedonia who was saying come over and help me he didn't even know it that he was he was doing it but that's who he was it was it was this man now that same extraordinary love that is shed into the life of this man under these circumstances is the same love that has been shed abroad in the heart of every one of you who believe. And what a blessing that must be for you to be able to look at this scene and say, I've been loved like that. I've been loved with this kind of love. I've been loved with this sort of desire. It, it was that sort of gracious, bold, powerful love that God has loved me with as he's called me out of sin and death and darkness, opened my heart to the gospel and brought me into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ because of his love for me. Now, I don't mean to suggest that all the particulars are the same or even nearly so dramatic for any one of you. This is the jailer's story, of course. But the character and the nature of the love, of God's love, is consistently the same, beloved. 
And while it may not have revealed itself to you in quite so thrilling a way, nevertheless, that same love that saved you from sin and death saved also this jailer. And we want to continue this morning to look at the extraordinary nature of this love and the truth that we're seeking to get a full picture of from the scripture begins with that simple but awesome statement of John that we looked at last week in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. He who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. It's just that simple truth that God is love that we're trying to get a hold on, we're trying to get a grip on, an understanding of the whole of it. Last week, we began to consider the implication of John's description of God here. When he tells you that the eternal God of the heavens, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is love. Samuel Pierce put it this way. He is in and throughout the whole love itself, goodness itself, kindness itself. The love of God often when the attributes of God are being listed the love of God often is under the goodness of God. We stated that if this is true, that that God is love, then you should be able to trace the loving hand of God in every work of providence and every blessing of the covenant. And we took time to show that that can easily be done. We took a brief survey of the word of God And uh, we showed how the love of God was not only evident, but it was specifically referenced throughout the scriptures where various things concerning God's providence and his covenant blessings could be found. (coughs) Excuse me. Now we understand that the God we worship today and serve today is more than love. But that doesn't diminish in any way the fact that he is, in his essence, just that, love. Now, it might not strike you this way when you first encounter it, but the scripture bears testimony to the character of this love in the Godhead itself. If you look at John chapter 14 and verse 31, Jesus is speaking, and he says, but that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Let us arise and go from here. Now, what is it that Jesus wants the world to know there? What is it he's saying? I want communicated to the world, to the whole world. He says, I want the whole world to know that I love the Father. That I have (coughs) this love for for Father God. Then in John 15, 9, Jesus says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. What is it that Jesus offers here as the guide for you to understand how he loves you? 
It's the love of the Father for him. So put those two things together now. Jesus wants to communicate to the whole world his love for the Father. And then he also wants it recognized that the Father loves him because the love that the Father has for him is the kind of thing that he wants to communicate to you as he loves you. And so all that you enjoy in the love of Christ for you is a reflection of the love that the Father has for the Son. And I hope you can see here how the characteristics used by Jesus to describe the relationship between himself and the Father and the Godhead is love. That's the union that he expresses here when he's talking to you about the relationship that they have within the Godhead. And, you know, we struggle with that, trying to understand the Trinity and how the Trinity interacts with with one another and and how the the Lord our God, uh, the Lord our gods is one. We try to understand how how that works. And Jesus is explaining it to you here. He's saying the thing, the, the thing that stands out in it all is the love I have for the Father and the love the Father has for me. And that's the love which we communicate to you by the Spirit. If we turn to John chapter 17 and verse 24, in verse 26, Jesus is praying in what we call his high priestly prayer. And he says there, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me, that's you, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. And why? For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you see the glory doesn't take precedence there, but the love? The glory is reflected in the love. And I have declared to them, that is you, your name, and will declare that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So here's this beautiful picture of love coursing through the Godhead, through the eternal Godhead. It is the holy, righteous, pure love that God has for himself. And it's that same love which reaches out and captures the lost and manifests itself to them in Jesus Christ. It's that love which has reached out and captured you and manifested itself in you through Jesus Christ. If God loves you, beloved, then this love of God is in you. And it manifests itself, it reveals itself in the love that you have for him and the love that you have for each other. Here is in reality the great fountainhead of all true love. And we looked at this just briefly last week in the in a practical context. What is it for you? Remember we said who are spouses to love one another with the love of God. 
What is it for you as a parent to love your children with the love of God? For you children to love your parents with the love of God? For you as brothers and sisters in Christ to love one another with the love of God? You're not being asked to stir up your own emotional character of love and to bestow that on one another. You're being asked to love one another with the love of God that is in you through Jesus Christ. So wherever love is found troubled or maybe waning or even struggling to express itself, the person in need should appeal to God who is love for a fresh outpouring of his love in his or her heart so that you can love that person as you ought to love them. With the love of God. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, just before the passage, John says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So here we are, we're loving with the love of God. Well, what is the love of God like? Well, the first thing we want to emphasize is that it is an unconditional love. It's an unconditional love that God has for you. And there are minimizers of that love. This is no uncommon love. This love which God is, is utterly and utterly free and unconditional in its nature, unlike any other love we know. And there are those, however, who dare to minimize this character of God's love. And they try to restrict it to what we would call a reciprocal love in some way. And what they do is they say, God only loves you because he looked down the corridors of time and saw that you would love him. And so he loves you because he saw that you would love him. And when we say reciprocal children, uh, we mean that there's a trait here in love. My puppy loves me, so I love my puppy. It would be hard for me if my puppy bit me all the time and barked at me and wouldn't come and sit on my lap for me to love him. I wouldn't feel the same kind of affection for a puppy like that that I do for the one who comes up and licks my face and wants to sit in my lap and so on. It's easy for me to love that kind of a dog. The truth is that you and I are like that nasty, cranky puppy in the eyes of God. And yet he still chooses to love us. And that's the kind of love that he has for us. It doesn't begin with anything like love on our part. Whether now or in the future, it began with himself. And this idea that God only loves you because he saw that someday you would love him, it runs in the very face of God's word concerning the nature of his love, which he emphatically declares to be free and unconditional. We love him, John says in 1 John 4.19, because he first loved us, not because he saw that we would first love him. Now, the true nature of this is revealed in Scripture. 
everywhere. It's revealed in declarations like we find in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me, says Jeremiah, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. I've loved you everlastingly, and so I have drawn you to myself. This free and unconditional love is, is first manifest to us in the creation. It's important for us to understand that it was not necessary for God to give existence to mankind. It wasn't necessary. It was loving grace. God didn't need people to be happy and holy. He didn't need them to fill out something that was lacking in himself in some way. It wasn't necessary. The truth of this is shown in two statements that you find in the book of Job. The first one is in Job chapter 22, verse 3, where the question is asked, is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? Does God profit in any way when you do what he commands you to do. That is God himself in his person. And the answer is no. Nothing is added to God when we do that. God isn't made more God. He isn't more holy than he was before. He isn't more powerful than he was before. He isn't more glorious than he was before. He is God. And our, our being obedient doesn't add anything to who he is. John Gill puts it this way. He says, he would have had as much delight and pleasure within himself if there had never been a holy angel in heaven or a righteous man on earth. He has no such pleasure in either as to be made more happy thereby or so as to receive any gain or profit from it. The second verse is found in Job 35 and verse 6. If you sin... What do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? So what do you take away from God when you're disobedient? And the answer again is nothing. Gill says his essential glory is untarnished, unsullied, and unhurt by the sin of any, no more than the sun by an eclipse. He is the same without any variableness or shadow of turning, as well as over all blessed forever. So he's given you life, but giving you life doesn't add anything to him or take anything away from him, and there's no necessity for that life. The truth is, friends, God had a son to love, a perfect son that he already loved. As Spurgeon says, since God had a son of his own, and such a son, how wonderful God's love in adopting us. We the father, but he didn't need sons or daughters. We need a father to even have the hope of existence, but he didn't need sons and daughters. But it's more important that we're careful 
to personalize this as much as possible. Because <coughs> it's there that we see most clearly this love for God. We see most intimately how this love is shed on us. Just reflect for a moment on how there is really no compelling reason from God's perspective for your existence. For you individually. There's no compelling reason. God never said, oh, to do what I want to do, I've got to have a Chris Lynch. I've got to have an Andy Marsilia. I, I, can't, I can't go on unless I have them. I've got to have them to accomplish what I want to accomplish. It's important to who I am as God. No. It was never that way. The reason for your existence is the will and the love of God for you. You are here because God loved you and therefore gave you life so that he could shed his love on you. You're here in this world at this time simply because God chose to give you life out of love. And this is in part what makes the rejection of God and and the life he gives such a reprehensible thing. But this matter becomes all the more intense when you when, when God makes that love known to you by his electing grace. That takes it even a step further. Uh, here I am, God has not only given me life. Why is he giving me life? Because he loves me. But look beyond that, he's given me new life in Jesus Christ. And why? Why has he given me this life that I have in Christ? Because he loves me. That's why. Why do you have what you know to be yours in Jesus Christ? It's because he loves you. That's why you know it. That's why you know who Christ is. That's why you know what he did for you on the cross of Calvary. That's why God sent his son into the world. Because he loved you and loves you and will always love you. And who, beloved, are you and I to be loved like that? Who are we? To know that kind of love. And knowing this, that God loves us like this, doesn't it give you great peace? You're not here stuck in the world in the midst of all this turmoil that's going on. Um, and it's all just sort of unfolding and, and you're there being thrown from one way or the other. You're here right now because God loves you. And it ought to give you peace. What, it, what a blessing it is to know that you are the deliberate object of divine love. Knowing that, knowing that and embracing that gives unprecedented dignity to your existence. And it is the, the key to the worth of every believer.
Now it's evidenced also in the wide and broad testimony of the scripture. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born and not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so right here, we see this particular love, this unconditional love being exercised by God. And it's astounding here that the Lord doesn't say here, Jacob, have I chosen? Because that's the point, right? That he chose Jacob and not Esau. But it doesn't say, Jacob, have I chosen? It says, Jacob, have I loved? Because the love is the force, the power behind the choosing. I've chosen because I love him. And I've chosen to love him. And that's why he is where he is. And clearly Paul's whole point here rests on the free and unconditional love of God who, who chose to love Jacob. And the New Testament takes us back to the Old Testament time to verify this truth <clears throat> but this isn't the only place we find it. We find it clearly in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8. The Lord's talking about his choosing of Israel. And he says, I did not, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all people, but because the Lord loves you. That's why you were chosen. That's why you're in this special position, this covenant relationship with me, because I chose to love you. And the Lord is, is exercising or, or making clear his independence here. It's to assure their humility. This is unconditional love to them that has delivered them from their bondage. And so important is that reality is repeated again in chapter 10 and verse 15. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. It was his delight. And just to bring this clearly into the New Testament context again, Paul speaking to Titus in chapter 3, verse 3 says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. What is that an evidence of? God's love. Cramner said, the love of God towards us comes from love and has no other cause above or beside itself, but is in God and remains in God, so that Christ who is in God is its center. So we just summarize this. Your God is first, free to love as he pleases. And secondly, he does so unconditionally. That is, there's no compelling attraction emanating from us that brings out this love in him. The truth is just the opposite. As Thomas Watson says, there's plenty in us to incite his fury, 
There's plenty in us to make him angry, but nothing in us of ourselves to invite his love. Go back and think about that jailer in Philippi. There's not any indication whatsoever that there was anything adorable in that man or any of his family. We don't know very much about him, but by virtue of his job and the circumstances under which we find Paul and Silas in his care and the course he is ready to resort to when he discovers the jail compromised, we see little to commend him to God. Here are God, two of God's servants innocently beaten and he locks them in stocks. There's no indication he did anything to make them more comfortable, that he, that he bathed their wounds in any way or did anything. They were brought in. He just treated them like criminals and threw them in the prison and locked them up like he was supposed to. There's nothing there to say, oh, isn't this a sweet, dear, compassionate man who deserves grace? There's nothing to indicate that. We don't find him singing along with the hymns. You know, sort of getting in there and saying, gee, I wish I could do something more for these guys and sing along with them. There's nothing that, like that. And when he's ready to take his own life, he shows himself just to be a man of the world. His own circumstances have suddenly been compromised. And he knows he's going to have to die anyway, so he's ready to take his own life. That's where he is. And there's nothing there to commend him to God. And yet this man was loved, the scripture tells us, with an everlasting love that revealed itself to him in the critical moment of his life. Just as he was ready to take his own life and send himself to hell, the love of God came in and rescued his life and gave him the gift and hope of heaven through Jesus Christ. God's love to the sinner, says Thornwell, is the starting point in the scheme of redemption. And again, I come to that point. What is it like for you to be loved with this kind of love? And it should be added that this is not love that results from pity. No, it is intense. It's intentional. And what does it mean for you to be loved by that, like that by God? Not simply because he pities you, but because he intensely and purposefully loves you. Now, next time we're going to expand on these four themes. I'm just going to close with them quickly this morning. The first is that the love of God is free. It is precious and very costly in nature. This, this love, this unconditional love, it is costly. But Jesus paid the whole price so that you might freely know it. It's free to you. Peter says in 1 Peter 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, 
who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Secondly, beloved, the love of God is full. It's full. It supplies everything that such love demands, and it comes short in nothing. Every once in a while, in various situations, people will say, my spouse doesn't know how to love me. And it'll mean all kinds of things to that person who's saying it. And it comes sometimes from both sides. My, he, he just doesn't know how to love me. She just doesn't know what I need. I know he loves me. I know she loves me. But they just don't know how to love me. Not so here, beloved. Your God's love for you is full and it provides everything that is needed. It comes short in nothing. It is lavish and abundant. And we're going to look at that. Ephesians 3.14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through the Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That's the kind of love you have from Christ. And it's effectual. It makes itself known even in the most difficult circumstances. You might wonder here, if you look at the scene in, in Acts 16, how is the gospel going to get through in a situation like this? There's all this confusion going on, this man suddenly in, in emotional turmoil. Is this the time to say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household? And the answer is yes. Because the love of Christ is a way of working its way through everything. In Hosea 11.4, the Lord says, I drew them, that is my people, with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those that take the yoke from the neck. I stooped and fed them. And then lastly, it's unfailing. Neither time nor circumstances diminishes the character of this unconditional love. It always burns with the same brightness and we'll only see it more and more clearly. In 1 John 4 and 15, Jesus says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in, in him and he in God. And we have known and believed that the love that God has for us, God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. And it never ends. That's the promise of Christ to us in his word. And this is the love that you have shed abroad in your hearts by the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you as you contemplate the character of that love. And if anyone doubts that love, well, the whole message of the gospel is intended to present that love to you. This is where the love of God is manifested, 
in his sending his son to die for you, that through his shed blood, you might know the love of God. The love of God might be focused on you right now, this morning, in ways you haven't anticipated. And if it is, it will be effectual. Pray that the Lord would let that love shine in your hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless us this morning as we think again about your love for us. Lord, we do ask, who are we? That we should have this unconditional love, not born out of anything in us, but born simply out of your desire, your will, your love towards each one of us. Thank you, Father, for loving us. And help us, Lord, to grasp more and more the sense and character of that love. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 455, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? Please stand and sing.